Good morning, everyone. Happy first Sunday of Advent. And if you are unfamiliar with Advent, this is a beautiful time of year where we look back on the first coming of Christ. That is what Advent means is coming. So we always have with this season, this beautiful tension celebration where we live between Christ's first coming and his second. So there is, in a real way with Advent, always this sense of longing where we celebrate with joy that God the Son has become a man so that he could redeem us from our sin and bring us to himself that where he is, we might be also. But we have that longing to be where he is and for him to come again. And so um, we want to come alongside you and your family this Advent series uh, season so that it is worshipful. I'm rejoicing to hear different ways that families are going about celebrating this time of year and really getting into family worship that looks back on the coming of Christ and shows how all the scriptures point to him. If you need help with that, we would love to come alongside you um, so that we really make this season and all of life all about Christ. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, it's probably, I don't know, let's see, I'll find 300 pages into your Bible. There you go. So if you um, flip toward the beginning and you work your way over from the beginning, um, it's right after the book of Judges. And you may be wondering, as we dive into this, why Ruth, of all the books of the Bible that we could be in for Advent, we've done series in the Gospels, we've done series in John and in Luke and in Matthew, and so why, when we're talking about the coming of Christ, would we be in this obscure little book buried in the time of the judges in the Old Testament? And Ruth, if you're familiar with the story, is, it's a beautifully written story. It, it is so wonderfully written with the turns of events and that movement of action and the, the tragedy and the love and the sacrifice and the generosity that you would think it was poetically, fictitiously written. So well do all the parts and pieces fit together. But like the coming of Christ, it is a story of hope and it is a story of redemption it's a story about love and loyalty and sacrifice and true giving. And it's a story of how God uses ordinary people and steadfast love to bring about his purposes. Even larger than that in this backstory, it's a story of God and his providence bringing forth Israel's greatest king from really an unlikely beginning and obscure circumstances. And in that way, Ruth's story really foreshadows the coming of Christ, but in a way that's even bigger than that, it serves as a backstory because ultimately, Ruth ends with the birth of David in this genealogy, and we know that the ultimate son of David to come is the Christ who would be the true king of his people. And so, in a very beautiful way, Ruth serves as one of the matriarchs in the line of Christ. And so we are going back in history into, um, if Jesus did Ancestry.com, 
we would find Ruth and we were going to go look at the story and how it all points us ahead to the coming of Christ. And so if you're able, in honor of the reading of God's word, please stand with me. And again, we are going to be in Ruth chapter 1 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pause there and pray. Father, we commit all of our time in the book of Ruth into your hands. Lord, all of your word is breathed out by you and is profitable for training us and for teaching us and for sanctifying us and making us more like Christ. And so we cry out to you, show us Jesus. I pray that you would minister your hope and your peace to every heart in the room this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I was originally planning on reading the whole chapter. We're going to be in the whole chapter this morning, and a lot of times we read the whole text that we're going to be in at the start of the sermon. And you may feel like, well, that was a really depressing place to stop reading. Um, So she's in Moab, and Naomi's husband dies, and her sons die, and we just stopped reading. And the rest of the chapter does end more hopefully because there is movement that leads us towards the rest of the book. But I pause here because in real life, seasons of darkness last longer than we would hope, right? There is this pause where we just stop here and we would wish that life would keep moving along and instead it's just a grave or the pain of suffering. Some of you may be in that very place this morning. I had a friend reach out and said, does any church have a plan for doing like a blue Christmas this year? And I'm like, man, that's actually probably a pretty good idea. Because I think for a lot of people, this time of year actually can be hard. It's a reminder of life that's been lost. Uh, It's a reminder of memories where everybody else was happy this time of year and, and you were not. Or even seasonally, it can be a time where a lot of people battle depression and hopelessness. In the trials and devastations of your life, so we can be talking about everyday grievances or big devastations, our tendency is to wallow in sorrow or 
to grow angry with God or to forget him entirely. And we're prone to wrestle in unbelief or to question God's goodness. Many times in the midst of trial, you might find yourself searching for God's purpose in the midst of the trial more than you search for him. And in all of it, we tend to lose hope. And so if you're battling for hope this Christmas, or you feel like the weight of all that you're grieving, whether it's past or present suffering, is weighing against joy this season, then I'm praying that this text would come and minister to your heart, and our whole study of Ruth would come and minister to you. So we're going to take the scenes of this chapter in turn. Um, I'm going to kind of give you a running commentary through the narrative, and then we're going to have one great takeaway and application for our lives, and I'll go ahead and give it to you so you can be thinking about it. But the truth that we're going to see throughout this chapter and this book is that God is both sovereign and good, and you can trust him and hope in him in the dark. And so that's what I've titled this message is Hope in the Dark. And so if we go to scene one, I'm going to give you three scenes, and we're just going to name them so you kind of have these clean headers. So the first scene of this book is what we just read. And I think if we were to give it a name, it would be darkness and devastation. This book starts off in the days when the judges ruled. And if you're not familiar with this time in the history of Israel, that can seem like a throwaway phrase to you. But that's why Ruth is positioned where it is in our English Bibles. The last verse right before this was from the book of Judges, and this is a very apt description of this period. So we're talking about the period between the kind of leadership of Joshua and the reign of King Saul. Um, to locate you in history, about 1,200 years before Christ to about 1,000 years before Christ. And the description from the book of Judges of this time in the nation of Israel is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so that's the nature of this time in the nation of Israel. We read in the book of Judges, there's this ruthless cycle of the Israelites falling into idolatry and doing what is right in their own eyes. And God gives them over to the hand of their enemies in hopes that they would cry out to him for help and he might bring them to repentance. And inevitably, they cry out to God for help. God is moved with compassion and pity on them. He has mercy on them. He raises up a judge or a deliverer, and the, the judge sets them free from the hands of their enemy. And then once they have peace and freedom, then they fall right back into idolatry. And it is the cycle that continues. Gross wickedness, lack of faith. Just if you're talking about just visually, spiritually visualizing this time, it's a time of deep darkness, a real spiritual wasteland. And so this story comes to us as a real oasis in the desert uh, for the nation of Israel. But the next thing we read in this scene is that there's a famine in the land. And again, most of us have not experienced a famine. So to you, that may just be a throwaway phrase or you just read over it very quickly. But a famine... And you're raising a family. They don't know how they're going to pay their bills. They don't know where their next meal is going to come from. They're starving. 
And the ironic thing about this scene is that Bethlehem means house of bread. So here they are. They've entered into the land of promise. And God had promised to bless them abundantly. And we know from the scriptures, Aaron read these for us in our reading of the law. From the scriptures, we know that God had mapped out a plan for his covenant people. If you obey me and you walk in my ways and in my statutes, then I will bless you. And this land is going to bring forth abundant fruit. I'm going to send you rains in due season. But if you abandon me and you walk outside of my good rule in your life, then you are going to sow seed and enemies are going to come and steal away the crops when they grow. And I'm going to make the heavens like bronze over you and they will not yield any rain. And there's this language throughout the curses that God gives to his covenant people where it is clear that God is after our highest good. He is not a punitive, sadistic God who enjoys the tribulation of his people. But Israel experienced the discipline of God because he loved them. And he was seeking to bring them to repentance. So we read over and over again. So that text that Aaron read is from Leviticus chapter 26. And verse 18, you can see, is an, an example of this repeated phrase. If in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then, and then the discipline gets worse. So enemies are going to come steal the crops. And if you still won't listen to me, then the crops won't grow at all. And so this is the nature of this kind of famine in the land. A spiritual famine happens first. They're not seeking God. They're not walking by faith in God. And so God sends a famine on the land that should be the house of bread, a, a place of blessing. And instead, they're experiencing the discipline of God, and all of it was made to lead them to repentance. But instead of repentance, what we see from this family is there was a man of Bethlehem and Judah. We don't even get his name yet. Here's a man who's from the house of bread. And he goes to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. That name means my God is king. And he goes with his wife, Naomi, whose name means pleasant. So this whole thing is like very paradoxical and seems so strange to a Jewish reader. Here's a man whose name means my God is king and his wife's name means pleasant. And they go with their sons to escape the discipline of God in order to seek provision among Israel's enemies. Now, Moab had been antagonistic to Israel for hundreds of years. They're the ones who hired somebody to curse the nation of Israel and the ones that led them into immorality in the wilderness. They had had uh, people that they were some of the enemies that came against them during the time of the judges that God raised up to bring them to repentance. And so here's a man who professes to have God as his king going into the land of Israel's enemies in order to seek provision from a place that is entrenched in idol worship and false worship. The Moabites worshipped a God with child sacrifice. 
So this is a nation that was entrenched in idol worship. And all of it should cause us to, to see something is, is wrong here, right? This is all wrong. This man's name means my God is king and his wife's name is pleasant and there's a famine on the land and God's doing it to bring him to repentance. But instead of repenting and, and bearing up underneath the hand of God, they seek to medicate with Moab. And there are ways that you and I do the same thing where God may actually send suffering or trials into your life as the good discipline of the Lord. And no discipline in the present time seems pleasant. It seems painful, but God's using it to bring you to repentance. He's using it to bring you into further fellowship with himself. And instead of responding to the good discipline of the Lord, we seek to escape it in other ways. And there are countless ways that we medicate or seek to find satisfaction outside of God, seek to find fulfillment outside of God. But the end of all those things is death. And that's exactly what we see happening here in this first scene. Elimelech dies, and Naomi is left as the head of her home. Her sons, whose names mean sickness and wasting disease, I know some of you are I'm getting ready to name children or just now did. This, you should be glad you're not naming them in the midst of a famine, right? This is, you want to know if they're depressed or not. This is how you know, okay? They, they must have been living in a famine for some time. I want you to think about the actual grueling nature of not knowing where provision was going to come from. And the text reads like they moved with their sons when their sons were pretty close to marrying age. So they could have been going through this famine for 20 years. But they named their sons sickness and wasting disease. After Elimelech dies, these sons take from among the Moabites wives for themselves, which was another huge, grievous sin in the eyes of God. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 and 4. God says of the people of the land, you shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve their gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Or in the book of Ezra, they describe marrying foreign wives as breaking covenant with God or breaking faith with God. And it's very important that we see that the issue with this interracial marriage was not a racial issue. It was a theological issue. So this has everything to do with believers marrying unbelievers, not a, a racial thing. So they are marrying into a culture that is laden with idol worship that was forbidden by God. And so these sons survive childless for 10 years and then they die as well. And so we're left at the outset of this story with three widows who, especially in that culture, are left without protection, without security, without provision. Naomi had lost her husband and her sons in the course of 10 years. And all that seemed like it would result in life or the preserving of life in Moab only resulted in greater death. So the point of this first scene is that this is a deep darkness. This is a deep sorrow. If you have been going through suffering and sorrow 
in this season or you have wounds and scarring from suffering and sorrow in your life, Naomi and these ladies understand in this season. It has been years and years of famine and death and darkness. So much so that Naomi says in verse 21 that she went away full, but now she's coming back to Bethlehem empty. Meaning the famine and the lack of food that she experienced at the beginning of the chapter actually felt like fullness compared to the emptiness that she feels now without her son and without her husbands. So the allure of Moab only led to pain and death, but God would bring beauty from ashes. And that's what we begin to see in scene two. So read with me. Um, I've titled this scene, The Return Journey. We pick up in verse six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Three times in this text, you're going to see Naomi calling Ruth to turn back. So this scene is really all about repentance and turning. Twelve times in this short couple of paragraphs, we read to turn or to turn back. So we're having this uh, this poetic turn of events where Naomi has been sifted and emptied and she hears God has visited his people. And so she turns back to go back to the house of bread and back to the land where God has promised to bless his people if they would repent and seek him. And you can see how weak her faith is because in supposedly in love for her daughters-in-law, she says, go back, go back to your mother's house. And that phrasing specifically was, go back to your mother's house and prepare with her to marry again and have a life again. I want you to go back. Don't, it's so bitter to me that you would experience the, the judgment of God or the discipline of God for all of our sin and disobedience. And I just want you to go back and have a life. But she was completely missing the point that singleness with God would be an eternity better than remarriage in Moab and life among Moab's gods. So in the first instance, she blesses her daughters-in-law and, and thanks them for their kindness to her and to her dead sons. Uh, but then in this next exchange, when Orpah and Ruth refuse to turn back, Naomi presses them uh, to go pursue freedom. And this text sounds very strange 
if we're not familiar with this concept of Levite marriage from the law of God. Um, she, she uses this language of, well, even if I had sons in my womb, would you wait until they're grown to marry them? And if, that's like, oh, so weird to us, right? Like, they're probably going to be 25 or 30 years older than the sons. That's weird. Why would anybody do that anyways? But in God's law, there was this uh, provision for raising up offspring for the deceased brother so that his name might be remembered in Israel. And so you can read about it in Deuteronomy 25. We're not going to spend time there. But the whole point is, if a brother dies, then it's the obligation and duty of his brother for his honor to provide for and care for his widow in taking her as a wife and raising up offspring for the deceased. And then that offspring would be named after the deceased son. And so in summary, Naomi is saying, I don't even have sons who I could give to you in in replacement for these sons that have died. Would you wait, even if I was pregnant, would you wait for them to be able to provide for you and honor you in this way? I have no one left to help give you security and provision. I'm too old even to be married again. And so go, don't come back with me. There's no life for you in Israel. They, They hate Moabites in Israel. Don't come back with me, please. I want you to go have a life. Now, Naomi recognized, and you can see this throughout this text, that everything that had happened to her had happened by the hand of God. And we do not know, and we can't read into the text, if everything that she experienced was consequence for sin. Because the reality is, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. So we know that the righteous and those in sin experience affliction alike. Some of these things could be cause and effect, consequences for their unbelief and sinful decisions. And some could be because suffering happens and God seeks to use it to draw us deeper into relationship with him and to bring us to a further repentance. The text isn't clear. We don't know why they're going through all that they're going through. But Naomi knows that it's from God. So I want you to look with me now and contrast the responses of Orpah and Ruth. I told Dave before this, I had a campus minister in college. He always called this girl Oprah. He couldn't hit, he was trying to say Orpah as hard as he could, I think, and he didn't. He just said Oprah and Ruth. So I'm having a hard time keeping them straight right now, but we're gonna do our best. Uh, So verse 14 says, they lifted up their voices and wept again. These are ladies in deep, deep sorrow. They've, They've all lost their husbands. It says, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So make sure you don't miss this. Orpah kisses Ruth, I mean, kisses Naomi farewell. And then she returns to her people and to her gods. And she is a vivid illustration of those who would profess faith in Christ and actually go on for a season with the church. They would actually have deep relationships with people in the church, and those relationships would have staying power. They would would go on with the church for some time. 
But when it finally came down to choosing between God and the unknown and potential suffering or a life that she knew and comforts and preservation of her own life, she chose Moab and Moab's gods over the one true God and his Christ. She, in essence, kissed Christ while she betrayed him. We have to beware of this in our own hearts, how easy it is to honor God with our lips while our hearts are far from him. And Orpah really in this moment is like the seed that Jesus talked about that's sown into the ground and it springs up with joy. The word of God springs up with joy in the soil of this unbeliever's heart. But when the cares of this world and the pleasures of life come in, then they choke out the word and it proves to be unfruitful. You can contrast Orpah with Ruth, who in this moment, this is the first time we hear any words out of Ruth's mouth, and she gives to us one of the great professions of faith and love in all of the Bible. Look at verse 16. This is in response to Naomi telling her for the third time to turn around and to go home. And Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. This text is used in a lot of wedding ceremonies because it is a powerful illustration of covenant love. Ruth is telling her, you cannot get rid of me. This, the language of that first line is, don't be against me. You cannot get rid of me. I am going to love you no matter what. I know this is hard. I know that we're going through it, but I'm following you. And I would rather have God and his unseen country. I'd rather experience all the hatred that's in front of me, all the unknown that's in front of me, and have God and your people than go back to these false gods and the life that I knew. And I'm going to love you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to care for you no matter what? And when death parts us, I'm still going to follow your God because I'm going to have a portion in him and in Israel all my days. This is real love and this is real faith. This is one of our takeaways is for you if you're not going through uh, a season like what Naomi has gone through or even if you are because Ruth was, what an opportunity you have to love people and have your faith carry them in the midst of their sorrow and loss. But this is the great surprise of this chapter. This remarkable faith doesn't come from the Jewish matriarch of the family. And it doesn't come from the father who was leading his house or from the husbands who should have been leading their families. This remarkable faith in Yahweh God comes from a Moabite widow who in this moment is deciding, I'm going to follow this God and his Christ. Here's the faith that the family should have had all along. Such a picture of real sacrificial love and loyalty, of real fearless courage 
and surrender. And it's no wonder that God uses Ruth as a type of the Gentiles who would come into Christ by faith. She's listed as one of the matriarchs in the line of Christ and as a picture of all those who are outside ethnic Israel having this invitation to come and believe on Israel's Christ and to be brought into covenant with him. And so we go on to our last scene, and that is empty on arrival, but with glimmers of hope. Look at verse 19 to the end of the chapter. It says, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So picture this. Bethlehem is this very tiny town. And so she comes back, and it's the talk of the town. Everybody is gossiping. They love a good juicy, right? And they're, they're like, is this Naomi who's coming back? Surely not. Look at her, right? This is, she has been aged by time and by suffering. And they're surprised that she's come back. She who left with her family and is now coming back, not with her husband and with her sons, but with a Moabite woman who they don't know. And they're saying, could this possibly be Naomi? And her response is, don't call me pleasant anymore. This name Mara means bitter. And she's saying, this, everything that's happened to me has completely changed who I am. Don't call me pleasant anymore. So you really see this picture of this bitterness of soul. This is not Naomi coming back with this robust faith. She says, I have been so emptied by God. And she knew that it was God. She, so I want you to make sure that we see this. Naomi may have been wrong in her response to God and in her questioning of God's goodness, but she was not wrong about God's activity in her life. She says, he is the one who brought me back empty. And that is true. He is the one who has testified against me and brought this evil upon me, this calamity upon me. So all these bad things have happened in my life and they came directly from the hand of God. So I want to get to these glimmers of hope. We said empty on arrival and glimmers of hope. And I, I want to get there. But if we're going to have hope in God, we have to believe that God is sovereign over the dark and in the dark. I want to see both of those things. So in Isaiah 45, verse 7, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So this is God's statement to his people when he's saying, I am God and there is no other, meaning there is no one else in control of anything. There's no one who can rival 
for my authority. I don't have accidents. Nothing happens outside of my control or providence, and I'm good and perfect in all of my ways and kind in all of my works. And we have no idea how those fit together sometimes in the trials of our life. We know theologically we may be able to give people good reasons on paper, but when you're sitting with people in the midst of their suffering, we have to know God has not stopped being God in this. We don't have to know why he allowed all this to happen or why he sent this calamity, but we do have to believe that he has. We have to trust him in the midst of this. Otherwise, we really do have no hope. If there are things that are outside of God's control, if life is just going to spin out, if he's not going to turn these tragedies for good, if he has no control to work them for our joy in Christ and for our everlasting good, then we really are hopeless. But this famine was from God. That's why in verse 6 we see that the famine ends when God visits his people. Life and death are from God. God is the one who took her husband and her sons. We see throughout this chapter that Naomi knew that God was sovereign and that all had that had come upon her was from his hand, but she doubted his goodness in it. And that is where we so often find ourselves. But we need to see that God was not merely God over the dark, but God in the dark with her. So painful and deep was Naomi's suffering that she could not see God's goodness in it. All she could see was the emptiness. She couldn't see Ruth, who God had sent back with her, and she couldn't see the springtime. So this chapter ends with this hopeful, and they came back at the beginning of barley harvest. But all Naomi sees is the emptiness and the suffering and the bitterness. But God was working, and he had been. You got to think with me for a moment. If they come back at harvest in springtime, there had been this move of God ending the famine in ways that Israel could not see. So when Boaz is sowing the seed in November, God is at work. And they're on this return journey and they're weeping and all they see is emptiness, all they see is bitterness, and all this time God is preparing them for a springtime harvest. These seeds are very much like Naomi. They're buried into the ground and they couldn't see sunlight. And They themselves were buried and unseen. But they, like Naomi's situation, were not empty. They were full of life that was about to spring forth. And the God who gives life and causes growth had been working with redemption and life in view. And so we have to see both of these things. Did God discipline Naomi? Was this the father's discipline, whether it was the result of sin or whether it was suffering that he sent in her life to bring him to himself? Was it God that sent these things on Naomi? Yes. But we know that he worked every bit of her suffering to bring her to repentance and to bring about great salvation, not only for her and for her family, but ultimately for the world as the offspring to come through Ruth's line was going to be the Christ who would redeem all the nations. So I want you to consider the grace of God in this. He's working in her life, and he'll do this in your life, sometimes in devastating ways, 
to bring you to himself and to give you fellowship with him in the midst of the darkness. Just like in the time of the, the judges, to bring you out of doing what is right in your own eyes and to bring you into calling on his name and to trusting in him. But what was God's ultimate response to all of their sin and all of their straying from him in their unbelief? He gives them Christ. God could have left Naomi in the ash heap in Moab. And he could have left us to our iniquities as well. But God's word says he does not deal with us according to our iniquities in Christ. And you may be in a dark night right now or in a seemingly hopeless season. But this text comes to you like Lamentations 3 this morning to remind you, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And so this text comes to you this morning so that you would hear this. There is morning and there is hope. You may not be able to see it yet. Your vision may be obscured by sorrow or by depression or by fear. And all you see right now is emptiness. But God is with you in the shadow. And you are not as empty as you feel. Even before you move toward God, just like before Naomi began to move back toward Bethlehem, God is working. He is working in your life to draw you to himself. And he's working everything in your life for a larger story that he is writing. And your story is meant in the midst of all your tragedy and sorrow to bring you to Christ, just like this story will dead end there. So we must, like Naomi, turn to him. To not be like Orpah, who in the midst of the devastation and loss, or like Elimelech, going and seeking further medication in Moab or turning back to the life we knew and forsaking God when things get hard, when the very tragedies and suffering of your life are meant to draw you deeper into union with him and relationship with him. God will work breathtaking trials in your life to bring you to repentance, to purge us of ourselves and to work our dependence on him and to bring us into his likeness. But I want you to consider this this morning. How would Naomi have responded if she had known what chapters two through four contained? Would she say that she had come back empty if she knew that all that she experienced was going to bring forth King David and David's son and that all of it would turn out for honor and salvation for her and for her family? Samuel Rutherford famously said, if your Lord calls you to suffering, do not be dismayed, for he will provide a deeper portion of Christ in your suffering. But he also said, in writing to a woman in the midst of her suffering, just like he might write to Ruth or to Naomi or to you this morning, when you are come to the other side of the water, and set down your foot on the shore of glorious eternity, and you look back to the water and to your wearisome journey, and shall see in that clear glass of endless glory nearer to the bottom of God's wisdom, 
you shall then be forced to say, if God had done otherwise with me than he had done, I had never come to enjoying this crown of glory. The potter knows what he's doing in your salvation. And you may be in the darkness of night before the daybreak, but this story comes to give you hope to say God is there in the midst of the darkness. He is there in your season of waiting before the breakthrough comes. And he is, if you will let him, working all of these things together for your good and your glory in Christ. And so, how will you respond to darkness and to trial this Christmas season? Or if you're not going through a season of darkness and you're not going through particular trials, maybe the Lord would use you like he used Ruth, whose faith and love carried those who are. But I'm praying for our church that our words to Christ this season would be those of Ruth to Naomi, where we would say to him, where you go, we will go, Lord Jesus. Your people will be our people. Your father will be our father and you will be our God. Your country will be our country and the home that we look to. And we resolve to love you and others sacrificially in the midst of the unknown. Trusting him, even when our circumstances seem like they point against his plan or his goodness in our lives. And so may the Lord use you this season to sustain the faith of others as you encourage them in Christ or as you resolve to love them like Ruth. And may God bless you as you look away from emptiness to the God who promised his son and gave him for us and he who is able to give you hope in the dark. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded of the hymn that says you move in mysterious ways and that you work these bitter providences in our lives and the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And I pray that you would, God of all comfort, comfort any who are experiencing trial or affliction or walked into this room with a sense of hopelessness or just general being down because of their circumstances. I pray that they would look up from their emptiness and see that you have demonstrated your love toward them in giving them Christ, that none of us has experienced what we deserve, but in you we are experiencing redemption the timing may not be what we've hoped, but I pray that if we're experiencing your discipline, that we would not despise it, that we would not try to get out from under it, but that we would trust you. And if we are experiencing suffering and loss, that we would look to the God who works all things for our good in Christ and that we would trust you and hope in you again. Lord, give us grace in these things and help us to love one another and to bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In Jesus' name.
Amen.